are live. Welcome to another episode of Cybersecurity Unscripted. And I have the great pleasure to introduce Christian Damoff, who is the uh, doctor of uh, a medical director for cybersecurity at the uh, University of California, San Diego. Uh, Christian, thank you very much for, for joining. Much appreciated. Oh, of course. Yeah, an honor. Thank you for this invitation. So, medical doctor slash cybersecurity. That's probably like the, the, you know, your first year doctor, medical doctor, and then secondly, your cybersecurity practitioner. Where do I even start? <laughs> walk me through, <laughs> you know, walk me through like the, the inception of, of how do you got to, to, to where you are. And it's such an interesting uh, mesh of, of skill set that I would love to dive in. But how did you get started? That's a great question. I get that a lot. And I agree. It's kind of a weird mismatch of skills. Um, it really starts out when I'm kind of a cliche, you know, I'm 12, I'm 13, neighbor down the street gets a compact Brasario and introduces me to this world of computers, like never having been exposed to it before. Uh, the only thing I really knew that was anything close was like a Super Nintendo. And it quickly turned into you know, what every other teenager does uh, when two teenagers get together, you know, there's hijinks and it develops into uh, a fascination and love of kind of the hacker community. So, you know, sending your friends um, sub seven or BO2K over uh, IRC or instant messenger. These were like the classic little pranks and uh, adolescent hijinks. I, I was so amazed when my, my own first computer got infected uh, again from a friend and um, this, the, mon the monitor would post a message saying something nefarious, like there's a ghost in your computer or my CD-ROM drive would eject itself. You know, that type of power um, and kind of, as I mentioned, adolescent hijinks. The By the way, I, I remember really those. Drew me on as an Christian, I yeah. totally remember, I remember yeah, those. I like, those were like, they were like ejecting back and forth, back and forth the CD-ROM. There was some sort of, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a virus, right? Yeah, classic like sub seven or BO2K. These are like the early teenage formative years where uh, I kind of grew up on the early internet and in the hacker space. I loved it. You know, it was nothing, it was never anything I thought I could have a career in. You talk to a lot of hackers nowadays back, from back in the day and they said, no, it's like a hobby or part of your identity or something that was you were drawn to because you were curious. And in a lot of cases, you know, you're looking for other like-minded people. I never thought I could do cybersecurity as a career. And so I, I kind of drift around the latter part of my teenage years and I go to school for philosophy. So um, I liked thinking deeply about things. It also gave me a great capacity to think about things like not having a job with a philosophy degree. And so about midway through my undergrad, my, I have the classic how am I going to pay my bills thinking about Socrates? And so uh, it turns out you can't for the most part. And I was, you know, thinking about, you know, what kind of careers would I, I be interested in? And uh, just serendipitously, I went uh, and tried to become an ambulance driver. I thought that was a, such a cool job to be able to go and be a paramedic or an EMT. So I, I got one summer, um, I got my certification, no ambulances, you know, would hire me to drive, you know, well, come on, that's not cool. I really wanted to drive an ambulance. But with my EMT certification, a hospital picked me up as a technician. And my first job in the healthcare space was in an emergency department. I'll tell so you do, that. So those, my are life. Two, so those are two separate certifications, the EMT and the ambulance driver, right? Those are like two separate 
uh, training type of thing, yeah. right? And and it's so um, cool, like, because nobody grows up and say, hey, I want to be an ambulance driver. Or maybe they do. I don't know. It's like uh, people say, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a pilot. You know, I, I don't know. Maybe like, you know, all of the above. But for like to be an ambulance driver, I mean, it is pretty cool. Um, and so you you got picked up and now you're you find yourself in the midst of, I'm assuming, some sort of chaos because that's what EMT deals with on a regular basis. And, and by the way, I've talked to a deputy CISO that does EMT part time, still does. And he says there's a lot of like things that are, are you know, kind of applicable from the stuff that you learn uh, hands on on dealing with crises. A hundred percent. I completely agree. So my, my first job was not driving ambulances to my dismay. I was not old enough and they didn't trust me with their, you know, $100,000 ambulance system. Uh, it's not nose teenager. Instead, it was going to the emergency department and helping out the nurses and doctors in the ER. And I'll tell you exactly what you mentioned. It's chaotic. You never know what's going to come through the front doors. It can be a sick three-day-year-old child. It can be a dying um, heart attack from a person who's 105. You have to be prepared for everything when uh, when you work in the emergency department. And as a, a teenager, that really opened my eyes and, and sparked in me a passion to work in clinical medicine. I really wanted to take care of people. I, I say um, I say this with with a little bit of dismay, but also with a little bit of uh, with humility. Hopefully, when you see me in the emergency department, you're probably having one of the worst days of your life. That every day I go to work, I meet people on probably the worst day of their life. And I'll say that is both a tremendous uh, honor to take care of people in the throes of all sorts of types of medical emergencies, strokes, heart attacks, everything, um, but as well as a tremendous responsibility. Uh, I just wanna say that I loved clinical medicine. I decided I wanna go to medical school after that. So I finished up my undergrad. I studied for my MCAT, got into medical school and it's a pretty intensive training pathway. So I really um, still loved hacking. I would go to DEF CON every year. I would have to beg my clinical rotations and my teachers in med school to give me Thursday and Friday off so I could go to DEF CON every year because that, it that was is, my relief. Um, unbelievable. I have to tell you, that's it's unbelievable because a lot of people, are, and I've talked to medical students and, you know, you have to stay up like so many hours and it's so intense, as you mentioned, the, the whole training. And, and then you decided to, so your release would be going out to DEFCON and having hands on like hacking, you know, wow. Kudos to you that you've, uh, you've decided that this is what you're, what you wanted to do. So you did get time off to go to DEFCON. Yes, I've, uh, I've gone every year since DEFCON 13 for the exception of one year when my daughter was born uh, a few days before DEFCON, but you know, for whatever, whatever serendipitous lucky way uh, I was able to go about it, Somehow I was able to convince all of the teachers to let me go, you know, take a couple of days off of my time. Of course, I'd always make it up, you know, later on in some rotation, work or work or, weekend your, or whatever it would what be. What was your favorite part at DEF CON specifically? What was like the, the most attractive piece of it? it? Just you made you, you know, drop everything and go. I'll tell you, there's something special about a hacking conference like DEF CON. It's so different than many of the other conferences in that space, right? So I call them vendor cons. I think a lot of other people do uh, call them something similarly. When you go to some of the larger events where there's so much money being infused from more of the corporate side of security, 
uh, it changes the atmosphere. It's no longer about learning for the sake of learning or that true hacker spirit um, of exploring things you shouldn't and learning things that no one else expected you to. Instead, it's, um, I need to protect this particular enterprise. I need to buy these tools, learn to deploy them, hire people. And those are all incredibly important things and, and a large part of what I do today. But at its core, it's pretty antithetical to the hacker ethos, which is that hackers, they don't need bureaucracy. They don't need permission. Um, they often do the right thing for the sake of the right thing, and they don't worry um, about uh, hiring or what particular tool they need to buy from a vendor. They don't, have pro they don't have project managers. And so DEF CON to me was a release because it gave me the opportunity to get back to my hacker roots to really um, to be with my people, right? So these are friends that I developed. You know, I would meet some people at DEF CON that I'd only known online and, and had been close friends with in IRC for years and finally get to meet them and do something that we all loved in an environment that was um, not corporate, um, not driven by any real um, financial motivation. And so I'll tell you, that's that's one of the reasons I go to DEF CON, but I'll tell you my favorite part of DEF CON and, and especially older DEF CONs was walking through the capture the flag area. You know, I grew up as a hacker. I always, you know, I like to say that um, since I've had to split my expertise in medicine and uh, hacking or computer security, um, you can never be the best at both, right? And so to walk through the capture the flag area and look at some of the best hackers in the world sitting there competing, you know, racking their brains about how to reverse a binary or finally capturing a flag on some crypto challenge that just had eluded them. That to me is the, it was so inspiring. And so I loved watching the old capture the flag events, and even the new capture the flag events, just how creative the uh, people who put them on were, so how difficult some of the challenges were, the creative solutions, and just kind of also the hacker history and hacker lore. You know, oh, did you hear what Team Shellfish did last year? They pulled out a zero day on on OpenBSD. You know, or, you know, when you hear about this stuff, it's hacker legend. And I really love that. I love the lore. I love the culture around hacking and I love the hacker community. And so going there every year, even when I was training in medical school, truly was a release for me. It recharged me. It was an opportunity to reconnect. And uh, I hope to go to DEF CON and other similar hacking conferences, you know, until I'm very, very old and we, we do them in the metaverse or something at that point. I hope that it never happens, but. <laughs> now, Christian, is there any, equivalent of of defcon in the medical field i'm just curious it's a great question no um i would say there are very all of those conferences are very corporate focused they have a lot of money the medical space right so pharma will fund a lot of things medical device manufacturers will fund them registrations uh costs and fees for most medical conferences are not a couple hundred dollars. They're often a, a thousand plus, couple thousand dollars to go to them. Um, yeah, they're very corporate. Uh, I have yet to come, I had yet to go to a, a, a medical conference that had that kind of real gritty provider focused, uh, let's take the money out of medicine side of it, which is really unfortunate. Um, and it's just, I think, a byproduct of how we practice medicine, particularly in the United States and other places is that you know, it's very expensive. There's a lot of uh, people involved that need to be paid and uh, this big whole economy around it. So yeah, I, I don't think there's any equivalent. 
I got to finish up the story though, real quick. Uh, so yeah, sure, sure. I'm going to DAFCON during medical school and I'll tell you, I have this like light bulb moments and I tell this story um, for people because I think it's really important. I grew up a hacker, never thought I could have a job in that. So I'm, I'm in medical school on my third year in medical school. You don't do much classroom education. You instead, you move to the hospital. And you rotate during the all through all the various parts of the hospital. You go to the psychiatry area or the psych ward. You go to the medicine ward. You do surgery. You do emergency medicine. You do all these different rotations. I'm on my very first rotation uh, in OB, you know, a place where they deliver babies. I'm getting toured around the hospital, and I go to the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. This is the place of the hospital where you have the sickest babies, you know, the premature infants the ones that come out and need a lot of resuscitation and help, really sick ones. And I'm walking around and I see a fetal monitor boot up. And this is a device um, that's connected to a little tiny baby in one of the incubators, and it monitors their vital signs. It, you know, What's their heart rate? What's their oxygen levels? These types of things. I see it boot up and it's running an ancient version of uh, Server 2K. Just, it's, in, it's just a Windows box and I see it boot. and you know, that happened so many times. And just for whatever reason, I was walking by when that happened. And I knew like a light bulb goes over my head. I said, this would be, I, I could own this. This is super easy. Um, anyone could do this. It was Metasploit, you know, in five minutes, whatever it would be. I had almost certainly known that that, pa that box wasn't patched. It wasn't protected. It wasn't segmented, et cetera. It's like a light bulb goes off over my, my brain. And I said, wow, if someone uh, infected that box with malware and it didn't work, like it stopped working, that little baby in that incubator um, could be harmed, right? If we couldn't detect that their heart rate was going up higher or their oxygen level was reducing in a timely manner, that baby could get really sick and, and maybe, you know, something really bad happened. This like light bulb moment goes over my brain and I'm able then at that moment to combine these two things, these two passions in my life, which was clinical medicine and hacking computer security, right? And um, to take a line from Josh Corman, you know, this is where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. I'm worried about um, not just the protection of sensitive data, which is really important, right? We don't want our data to get stolen or used, you know, identity theft, that's important. But it's even more important to protect systems that support human life. And there's only a few environments uh, where that is uh, you know, that actually occurs, you know, critical infrastructure. We talk about SCADA systems, electricity systems, and you know, but healthcare, that's all we do. And we have so many connected systems that support human life that are running outdated legacy operating systems or have generally very poor authentication practices uh, or when they were designed that result in hard-coded passwords and all sorts of really nasty stuff, right? So at this point, third year of medical school, I said, I can combine these two passions. I don't have to be a doctor in the day and then a hacker in my spare time. I can combine these two things because at the end of the day, I want my patients to be safe. I can use these skills I know in the computer security world and the hacking world to do that, to raise awareness, to hopefully do you know, push medical device manufacturers and hospitals to better secure these systems. And that's a worthwhile endeavor. And heck, what an awesome life that would be. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years or so is raising awareness about this issue, um, doing some policy issues, really talking about, again, as Josh Corman mentioned, where bits and bites meet flesh and blood. Let's do 
what we should do as a community, as a nation, as a world, and build the resiliency of hospitals and healthcare systems against cyber attacks like ransomware because the patients deserve it. That That's kind of what, and that's where I, I am now. And I'm sorry for this long-winded buildup, no, but I think truly, that's kind of the march to it. Christian, it's truly fascinating. And I, I'm assuming that 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 glimpse of what you saw was just the tip of the iceberg, right? As you've done this in the past 10 years, and they start to unravel the state of medical devices uh, around the hospitals and whatnot, what you just saw, like a quote-unquote legacy OS running a critical device, that's just, that's pretty common, right? What is kind of the state of the industry today, 10 years later? That's a great question. Uh, the I've been called a hopeless romantic and an optimist. I feel like I'm. I I have to switch need, over and say we need we need more like you, Christian. This is there's nothing wrong about that. <laughs> when it comes to this question, I I think I really have a pessimistic out view, outlook. So listen, this space is not new, and there are a lot of amazing other pioneers in this space. You know, I'll point to a paper that came out in 2008. Kevin Fu, an academic computer scientist and security extraordinaire, worked with a team at the University of Michigan to reverse engineer a pacemaker, right? So this is a device that is implanted into the chest of a patient who needs it, and it connects with a wire to their heart. And this device tells their heart how to beat, how fast to beat. And if your heart ends up um, getting a critical error, you know, if you end up blue screening your heart, um, it can shock you out of it, right? It can save your life. Just like you see on TV, you know, like the can you just say, Christian, can you just hit reboot? There's a memory dump, yeah, hit reboot and you'll back up. No. Right. So the way you reboot the heart is you shock the hell out of it. <laughs> you, you, you shock it. And so these defibrillators, these, these defibrillators can have, I'm sorry, these pacemakers can have defibrillators built into them and they can reset your heart if it tries to kill you. And so Kevin Fu's group like reverse engineered this pacemaker and found some, you know, very concerning um, vulnerabilities in this medical device. Um, this kicks off like a whole decade of medical device research. So we had, you know, um, Kevin Fu did pacemakers. We had Barnaby Jack, who also did pacemakers. You know, he did a classic on screen. Um, I'm sorry, on stage presentation where he hacked a pacemaker and said he could kill someone remotely with an antenna, which I, I think that research is probably uh, pretty accurate. Um, we had insulin pumps. These are little devices that give insulin to diabetics. They look like pagers. They have little tubes that connect to a patient's body and they deliver insulin. Well, you could hack these things. This is uh, Jay Radcliffe's work and Billy Rios's work about insulin, or sorry, and Barnaby Jack's work on this. We have so much, you know, um, research on vulnerable devices that we've seen for a long time. The early days around this was all about coordinated vulnerability disclosure, right? So these device, these security researchers would find flaws in medical devices. They bring them to the manufacturers. And in the old days, the device manufacturers would just threaten to sue them. They said, hey, um, we're going to sue you for this. We're, you better get ready to spend the rest of your life in jail. So uh, you shouldn't be hacking medical devices. So there wasn't a, a bug bounty program? for medical devices back then. That's what you're saying. You know, like a- There like wasn't. A thing and, mm -hmm. No, they don't. In fact, there there isn't much now. I mean, the space is so immature 
that even something like a bug bounty program would be a really hard thing to do even today. It's also hard, right? Like, so if you have a bug bounty program for like a web app or a website, right? It's publicly facing. Anyone with a web browser can go poke at it and find a vulnerability, right? A medical device is hard to get. You have to buy them. You have to find them so that you can hack on them. So there's a lot of ways. There's a lot of things that like traditional ways we engage in the security research community, like bug bounties, um, they don't work with medical devices because they're so rare and niche and you can't get them. So let me ask you this. They're rare and niche, right? So isn't that security by obscurity? The fact that you can't get hold of, uh, of one and then it's safe by default because you don't have access to one. You don't know what the vulnerabilities are. And so it's quote unquote secure. That's what a lot of device manufacturers thought um, until there's this whole, so until these researchers would buy these devices on eBay or in the case of Jay Radcliffe, he's himself is a type one diabetic. He hacked his own insulin pump, you know, that's connected to his body. So as much as I think device manufacturers would love to rely on that principle of, uh, of security by obscurity, it's just not the case anymore. And especially as a lot of these devices are becoming more and more connected, more and more integrated into cloud, as well as uh, mobile. So the future of medical devices that people you know, wear in their bodies and, and carry on them, their person, are going to be more and more integrated with smartphones. And so the, the attack surface and the exposure of that is really now extending beyond just the physical device into a whole ecosystem of uh, middleware and application, mobile applications. And so I guess at the end of the day is like that strategy did not work. And medical device manufacturers had a real reckoning of having to deal with hey, we can't ignore this problem anymore. You get this one-two punch. You have security researchers coming out with research and then the FDA coming out and saying, hey, we approve these devices. We aren't going to stop. We're, we're going to start caring about cybersecurity, right? So uh, as an FDA, as a regulatory authority, we don't think uh, vulnerable medical devices should be on the market. Hey, device manufacturer, what are you doing about this? How are you fixing this? How are you patching these devices? What are the, you doing with the next generation of devices you're developing? You're going to make the same mistakes you made last generation. And so this one-two punch of like security researchers coming out and their threats of suing them not working. And then the FDA saying, we care about this and you should too, or we're not going to approve your devices and you're going to lose millions and millions of dollars has now been like building the future of medical devices to be a much better space than it was 10 years ago. So I'm optimistic, but here's the thing, you know, a, a phone gets an update every year or so, you know, the, you know, you get mobile phone, you get new hardware, new software, whatever it's going to be right. With a medical device, it can take five, 10 years from when they first design a, a medical device to when it hits the market. So they might develop a medical device on an uh, embedded operating system that's currently supported, but won't be by the time it hits the market. It'll actually not be supported anymore. And so that long delay in, in from conception to when it hits the market makes it really hard to change the posture of medical device cybersecurity quickly. It's just it's a slow roll. So sorry about the long answer, but that no, 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 it's perfect. Question, it's, it's a perfect answer. You know, it, it is a perfect that, answer. So, so now, I think nowadays, I'm a, no, 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 just, I'm sorry, just saying, so now, now is there somebody at the FDA who understands this stuff enough, just like you, Christian, to say, oh, I'm approving or disapproving this, this medical device? So, you know, I'm not paid by the FDA. I have no conflict with the FDA, but I'll say, and, and 
I'm also as a hacker and all of us, you know, we're pretty skeptical of government bureaucracy, right? Like, so <laughs> a, a big part of being a hacker is like, hey, like the government. No, we don't like the government. But I will say the FDA has done a fantastic job of, of doing a couple of things. Number one, getting people there that care and know about cyber. So Suzanne Schwartz um, is, is a very ama- she's an amazing human being. She works for the FDA and she's built this entire team of people at the FDA to focus on this issue. And so it's an institutional priority, number one. Number two, um, they did a great thing. They engaged with hackers. Um, they weren't scared of them. They would come to, I mean, they come to DEF CON. They come to other security conferences. When uh, Billy Rios was giving his pacemaker hacking talk at uh, Black Hat, at the Q&A, Suzanne Schwartz from the FDA gets up to the microphone, first to the microphone, and says, us at the FDA, we support security research. We appreciate what you do, and we're sorry that you had to deal with all of this runaround from the device manufacturer. Thank you. That's for pretty you. amazing. That's amazing. You have a government agency officially coming up and saying, we support hackers hacking medical devices to make them safer. That's huge. Um, so that's just a couple examples of the great work the FDA has done. And the FDA actually has the, the jurisdiction, the chops, the, the gusto that device manufacturers will listen to them because if the FDA doesn't approve their device, they're out millions of dollars. You know, this is a big deal. So it's that a rare success story, in my opinion, of a government agency being able to really change the policy around something cyber for the for the better. And so with that and device manufacturers, you know, generally coming around to how important this is, I'm hopeful that the future of medical devices is going to be better than it was 10 years ago. And, you know, if you don't mind, I'll wear my, my tinfoil hat for a, little, for a little bit and ask you this, you know, do you think that there's, you know, some backdoors? that are planted by these medical devices for access by certain three letters acronyms, just in case they need to, 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 to do a covert operation on somebody. Is that a possibility in your expert opinion? Oh yeah. So I, don't, like, I don't know. It's a tough question. A Stuxnet for some medical <laughs> device. Yep. You got it. No, it's a good question. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I, I also, um, carry my tinfoil hat in my back pocket. I'll say we have no evidence of such a thing, right? So we've never heard of some government agency actually doing this. Um, but I will say that I could see it being a target for state actors for sure, right? So I don't know which ones, uh, but the ability to uh, easily hack an embedded device that could support uh, the life of an ambassador or some type of high um priority person seems like a natural focus. I will say that we also have one public report that Dick Cheney, the former vice president under Bush, went back into surgery to get portions of his pacemakers deactivated so that it could not pose a risk to him if someone tried to kill him. Um, So that's one report that we have of uh, espionage potential, but we've never seen anything like that, to my knowledge, actually happen. I have a quick question for you. So you mentioned specifically that some of the reasons uh, inherently, but, you know, from from development of these uh, medical devices, because it takes so long, 
between the the manufacturing, you know, first of all, development, research, development, manufacturing, and then launch, that the the OS and the internal software is so out, you know, out of date. That is uh, that is causing a lot of these vulnerabilities to 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 manifest itself. In in your opinion, what is the solution for that? Why can't they either have you know a firmware that's something that you can you know constantly update, or uh, maybe you know design everything and then you know at the last six months or something inject the kind of the software components associated with it. You know what what's the inherent issues with with why does it take well. Why can't you just accelerate at least the, the software piece to match with the, you know, the modern software development uh, deployment and so on? That's a great point. Uh, I think they're starting to the one of that one part of that is culture. So uh, device manuf- medical device manufacturing is a pretty niche, um, both hardware and software job, right? And we need high reliability, and there's a lot of these constraints that are around developing devices to try to make them as safe as possible from a functionality standpoint, right? Like we would, we don't tolerate in the medical device space, what we would tolerate on like a web app, right? A big giant glitch that makes the core functionality not work, right? Like Casey, it's important. a different way. We just had an <laughs> issue with our SaaS platform. Imagine, imagine this was a pacemaker, we'll be out, right? Case in point. Right. So, there, so I think the culture has, yeah, that's exactly it. So I think the culture around medical device manufacturing has just been, it's very, it's a small community generally, the experts tend to stay in that space. And so one thing is an issue of culture. How do you transform the way that you make medical devices, knowing that a lot of these teams are pretty static? Um, so, and it's really hard and expensive to just completely change your culture overnight and, and adopt some of these uh, better practices when it comes to developing secure, safe software. But I will say they recognize that they have to do that. And so there has been some change in that space. So one issue is culture. Number two is who is actually going to patch the device is a really interesting question, right? So when a company makes a, a piece of software, they're directly interacting with their customer, right? So you buy a piece of software or some web platform, you work with them, you are, uh, you are getting kind of, um, is your, is your browser okay? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm freezing. Okay. You're back. I might. Yeah. Just remember it's, it's recorded locally. So whatever, if we have some issues, um, you know, it would, it would be choppy on live, but then recorded, hopefully it would be, will be fine. Hopefully. But yeah, you come in choppy. No, no, it's, it's, yeah, I, I checked my speed. It seems to be okay. I might have to, if this continues, I might have to reboot my router as well, but uh, hopefully not. But hopefully that's the whole point why I'm using this and not Zoom because it records this uh, much higher quality locally and then it uploads it to a separate me. stream. Yeah, no, no worries. Sorry about that. All right, so I'll get back to the, to the meat of it. So the second, so first thing is culture. The second thing is really going to be um, who patches these devices? hospitals for the most part buy a lot of these larger medical devices and then they don't become in the control of a medical device manufacturer anymore and even if you know they do issue a patch for example to fix some issue uh, some vulnerability it still requires the hospital itself to do the updating in 2017 uh congress 
uh, had a task force that looked at healthcare cybersecurity and they issued a report. This report estimated that 80% of hospitals lack a single full-time security professional on staff. I'm gonna say that again. In 2017, they estimated 80% of hospitals don't even have a single security practitioner in their environment. That's what do you think why. of the numbers today? And if that's the case, uh, it's probably a little bit, a little bit uh, lower. I want to say maybe it's seventy nine. Yeah, <laughs> and, and also um, let me ask you this: maybe more. You know, also the patching thing it comes to mind. So whenever we patch, a lot of times there's a downtime. Like there's a, you know, there's a, you know, when you patch your phone, you patch a system. There's a, you know, they even tell you this in your message saying, "Hey, the system will be down for the next five minutes." It's not possible to do that for some of these medical devices. That's a that's an astute observation. I completely agree. So you have to have the people to do the patch, which you know a lot of hospitals don't. Um, number two, even if they have the people, who are they going to prioritize patching a single legacy device, or are they going to prioritize you know uh, working on their firewall or hardening their AD or something like that? Right? There are all these competing priorities and limited people. And then number three, you bring up a really good point, which is when you patch this device, there's a non-zero chance that it won't come back up. Right. So there's a classic paper that was looked at. A, cl a classic paper came out. And I, I hate to keep harping on pacemakers, but that's where most of this research is out of. Um, there was a paper that came out that said, you know, like one in every certain thousand updates to a pacemaker. You try to update the firmware on these pacemakers in one in I forget the number, but it's like thousands of updates. It fails and the device goes into some default mode that can hurt the patient. Wow, and you know, so there's not, not a there's a non-zero chance that those are not good statistics right. at all. So that's, patching, those are like that's like that's a scary, that's a really scary thing. It's not like one in a million. This is like one in a couple of thousands, which basically means you're not going to wake up. Well, there there's a couple of things here. I don't know the exact number. It's definitely in the thousands. And number two, you know, the pacemaker still works, but it goes into like a default mode. So imagine it, your pacemaker is customized like a glove to work for you and your medical condition. When it goes to its default mode, it's just supposed to make sure your heart keeps beating, um, essentially. So it, it, you may get short of breath. You may have some other issues. I guess at the end of the day, patching medical devices is a tricky subject. Many people fall on the side that we shouldn't patch these at all. If the risk to, to humans is too high, show me what the actual cyber risk is, right? So can you show me someone that's hacking these devices? Can you show me someone exploiting these vulnerabilities? And often we say, no, like we can't show you anything in the wild. These are theoretical risks that researchers found. So a lot of people say, until there's demonstrable patient risk, so you can show me someone who's actually being harmed by a hacker hacking a medical device, why would you risk patching it? Now, that's one extreme. The other extreme is kind of more where I fall, which is, you know, these, these, the software, these devices are more and more dependent on software. If we don't establish best practices and practice patching them, there will be a remotely exploitable vulnerability on a device and that is going to hurt somebody. And we don't want to be trying to figure out how to patch systems we've never tried to patch before when that happens. And so I'm much more in the camp of 
let's practice responsible, safe patching. Let's have some contingencies that if things should fail, you know, they fail gracefully instead of catastrophically. But you, you, you're really touching on a lot of the really classic problems uh, of patching that are unique to medical space where it can hurt people. There's not a lot of people to do it. And the other thing I would say is, you know, we don't have the fancy over-the-air updates. We don't have the central uh, patching management from the device manufacturers. You know, these these are going to be like um, little one-off ad hoc patching programs. And even knowing which the medical devices are running what software and to what degree they need to be patched and what patches are available is a pretty hard thing to do. So no patch hospitals. Tuesday anytime soon for pacemakers. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think we'll have a no patch. I will have a patch. <laughs> I will say this though. Um, I love a future where you can um, do over the air updates for some medical devices, right? Like if we take some of that, takes away some of that complexity and reliance on the healthcare delivery organizations. The hospitals are just trying to help people, right? Do you want to turn them into a whole security shop too? Like, do we need just as many security practitioners in a single hospital as we do, you know, doctors just to make sure everything works? That's just not, it's not responsible or it's not a good use of resources. We need to be basically building better, more resilient systems out of the box um, so that we don't have to rely on some rural critical access hospital that knows nothing about cyber to do the right thing. They just, it's an impossible proposition. It costs too much money. And that's a losing battle that we'll face uh, from the healthcare space as we move forward. Now, tell me this, a lot of uh, companies these days and product manufacturers, sometimes they, they advertise their cybersecurity practice and, you know, the overall security of their products, whether it's services or products and so on, as a selling point. Is this something that you see ever going to, you know, so as a patient, you'll have two two choices of, of pacemakers, coming back to that, and one advertised that they've they've done the, you know, the, the right software development with SDLC, with the cybersecurity controls in place, and the other one does not. And, and so they have not, you know, conducted like some pen testing on there. And then, you know, the, the patient will say, well, you know, I don't mind paying a little extra, you know, to make sure that I'm secure and potentially that somebody's not going to, you know, go, you know, interfere with my pacemaker. Do you think that's ever going to happen? That's a great question. I've been quoted as saying there should be no competitive advantage in healthcare cybersecurity. Like, I don't want billboards on the side of the freeway that say, come to our hospital. We didn't get hacked last year. Like, don't go to that hospital. Um, listen, I, I think that... Maybe that's what we need, are... though. Maybe that's, that's <laughs> well, you know, the driving force, you know, because, like, at the end of the day, it's all about money, right? Money and revenue and even, it, it, let's face it, even in the medical field, right? Especially here in the U.S. So maybe that's what we need. I, maybe they have to have the billboards. boards. I, I would agree if you can actually choose these things. Um, you don't choose your hospital system often. Um, your insurance does, right? So who you work for determines what insurance you get and therefore what hospitals you'll go to, right? So if, you're a Ki if you have Kaiser insurance, you don't have a choice. You can't go to another hospital system that might be more secure unless you want to pay out of pocket. And that's just out of reach for so many people. When you go to a hospital and you need a pacemaker, you don't often get a choice what model pacemaker gets put in your body. It's whatever the cardiologist is used to, whatever your insurance will pay for, and whatever they have on hand at the hospital. 
I agree with you that we can't, I'm not a communist or a socialist. Like I believe in market forces that drive good decisions. But the problem is, is that in healthcare, consumers don't have choice. You get what your insurance pays for and it, they don't care if it's cyber secure or not. Your insurance cares how much it's going to cost them to buy. And your cardiologist doesn't know anything about cybersecurity. They're not going to pick one pacemaker over the other because it's more secure. They're going to pick the one that they know most, trust most, have used most in the past, right? So I would agree that we, the traditional ways that we use market forces to encourage good cybersecurity uh, actions just don't work in healthcare. Unfortunately, the way that we have it set up, it's just not going to be possible. So then we're left with an alternative. Like, what do we do then? If we can't use the market to push device manufacturers to do the right thing always or hospitals to do the right thing always, what do we do? Well, we share best practices. You know, healthcare is a communal good. It's a, in my opinion, it's a human right. What I don't want are certain hospitals being super cyber secure, have great programs, and them not really lifting the entire community up to be more cyber resilient. Because I'll tell you another really interesting thing. We're all in the same cyber boat when it comes to healthcare. You know, we haven't even touched ransomware, but what we know now, and what I've actually uh, published some abstracts on, is that ransomware affects a community of hospitals, even if you yourself are not infected. If the hospital across the street from you gets hit with ransomware, they can't see patients, they can't take care, they can't give chemotherapy to cancer patients, they can't do surgeries, they can't do these things. Guess where those patients go? They don't just stay home. They go to the hospital across the street that's not hit, right? So it, we call this like this ecosystem effect, the cybersecurity disaster ecosystem effect, where the blast radius affects all the other hospitals. They get overwhelmed with patients, right? So what am I trying to get at after all this? It's not just how secure your hospital is or how secure your medical device is, and that's all you should care about. Instead, we're all in the same boat. And if we don't raise the cyber resiliency of the entire ecosystem of all hospitals, of all regions of care, then we're still left with a suboptimal outcome at the end, which is that people don't get the care they need when they need it because uh, of a big cyber attack, for example. And so, you know, that leaves me to say, let's stop competing on cyber. Let's share resources, best practices. Let's learn from one another to do the right thing for people. Um, not just the bottom line at the hospital or the medical device manufacturer, you know, shareholder meeting. And is that a pie in the sky or do you feel that this is something we're, we're slowly but surely moving towards? Yeah, it's pie in the sky. There's no way. There's no drivers for that. There's no, no precedent for that. You know, honestly, I think we're unlikely to obtain something like that. But unless there's some catastrophic issue, right? Like, so if wanna cry which took out a third of the hospitals in the, in the United Kingdom, if WannaCry happened in the United States and we had a third of the hospitals in the United States get hit with ransomware, devastating ransomware, then I, I think we would see the political will to change that calculus, right? I think we would have a, a significant change. But until something like that happens, I really don't see it happening. And, and it's no one talks about it because people are talking about SCADA systems and the critical infrastructure, but yet almost, you know, this whole medical field. And as you mentioned, the, the impact of a cyber attack on the, our national healthcare grid, 
no one is something that no one talks about is why is that is it because there's not enough people like yourself that are advocating for something like that or it's just not on top of mind until something happens yeah it's a great question um i think there are a few things uh number one when a power grid goes down uh, it's pretty public right there's a single point of failure usually like a, a, a electrical company will get owned or a substation will get owned right and that is very public. A lot of people, it affects all these people in a region. And there's an easy focal point to say, hey, this is a linchpin in our critical infrastructure. We need to focus on it. When hospitals get hit with ransomware, generally speaking, they don't talk about it publicly. We hear reports in the newspapers, right? We hear some whisperings. These become class action lawsuits and really complicated legal matters for hospitals with a lot of liability. So they don't talk about it. We also don't have enough people measuring the effects. I'm a big fan of Let's take the expert opinion out of it. Let's take out the platitudes and the classic teachings of this, and let's get some data to back up what we do and what we say. And we don't have data to talk about these impacts. You know, we've published some very um, small amounts of data, but more people have to get into this game to show the actual impact before people uh, understand the interconnectedness of it before Congress recognizes that this is a national priority. And although uh, healthcare is seen as critical infrastructure, it really isn't treated the same, as you've mentioned, when it comes to the interconnectedness and networks, because they're all little fiefdoms, they're all little kingdoms, they're all little private companies, and there's so many of them compared to other types of critical infrastructure like electricity and, and et cetera, grid. So I guess those are a couple of reasons why we're not talking about it like that. I think that conversation's changing. And I think that there are some opportunities for certain leaders in this space to emerge, different federal agencies to step up to the plate and, and own this. I don't think it's gonna just be CISA. I think it needs to be HHS and ASPR and a few other like large, large organizations in the Fed that really um, move this. And they are. They're working on this. I just think it's a, it's a really hard thing. It's a really hard problem. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, it seems that, that there's not enough, enough emphasis specifically on, on this area, despite the fact that it's just as vulnerable, if not more, more vulnerable than, um, than SCADA for you know, attacks, for example, from nation state. You know, what if exactly, you know, what you just mentioned, what if a half our hospitals are going to get disabled by, by a nation state malware or some sort of like mechanism that they, does that? And then it combine that with, you know, maybe offensive or other type, you know, it's always a, you know, for, in Russia and Ukraine, it's the first time that kinetic warfare was combined with, with, you know, cyber warfare. And we're going to start seeing that more and more. Um, and then again, this whole medical area is is vulnerable and critical at the same time. So hopefully, uh, maybe some of this conversation would would float somewhere for somebody to to listen to. And let me ask you this: and and we're going over time, and I really appreciate that, um, uh, Doctor. Yeah, I, so, I do have a meeting. I'm so sorry. I do have so, to run like very very soon. Okay, so we'll do sorry. just wrap up. Like, yeah, no worries. Just wrap up uh, with just a since you were a philosophy major and you have that mindset. You know, there's a lot of AI machine learning now incorporated into into the medical field. Do you have any concerns from a, you know, if you put your philosopher hat that, you know, decisions that are going to be made or, you know, decisions support by AI system would, would, would not be the right ones because, oh, because yeah. some, you know, somebody made the wrong decision in terms of how to program these. 
That, that is a brilliant insight. So I want to say one of the biggest emerging threats or threats that are already here is adversarial machine learning when it comes to medicine. You know, that's where the innovation is really happening in a lot of the medical space. That's where most of the startups are at are using machine learning algorithms to improve healthcare delivery. And what does that mean? It means let's take a critical appraisal of our infrastructure that we use to derive these, you know, very valuable algorithms. And we realize that they're pretty poorly secured. So whether or not you're attacking the the actual data sets themselves, the ground truth of what you train an algorithm, or you attack the infrastructure, you know, it's just terrifying to think about the implications at mass scale of attacking healthcare machine learning algorithms. Because what you do is you can very intelligently, and there's a rich literature base in this on experts that have been talking about this for years, you can attack healthcare AI algorithms in a way that is not very obvious the impact to certain groups. You can poison them in a way that they only harm certain types of people uh, that have certain type of phenotypes or certain types of genetics, whatever it may be in the future, where doctors, hospital systems are even more reliant on them to make decisions, just opens us up to catastrophic failure and or systemic issues of injuring particular specific populations of people. I think you're right on the money here. We're more and more dependent on these things for decision support. That's not going away. The infrastructure's horribly secured. And as a consequence, intelligent adversaries that wish to really take advantage of this are mopping up right now. Now, do we have evidence of that in clinical practice? We don't. We have lots of great literature to show that that is possible and not in some ways trivial. And that's a terrifying prospect for me. We really need to rethink how we approach this because if we don't get our hands on it now, um, we're just going to be catching playing catch up just like we did medical devices um, for the next 10 years. And that's something that, that I don't think we should accept as a, as a community. You know, I wish, Dr. Demify, I wish we had more time. Well, maybe we'll schedule a part B of this stuff because I feel like we're just starting cracking the open, the, uh, the can and we're going to dive in. But until the way, until then, what's the easiest way for people to reach out to you for any reason to know more to about the research or whatnot? Just the easiest way and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, come uh, hit me up on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way. I'm at CDAMFMD, C-D-A-M-E-F-F-M-D on Twitter is probably the easiest way to reach me. And then if you ever see me at a conference, most people don't call me by my name uh, at DEF CON. I go by my handle, which is Quaddy. So if you see me Quaddy. at a conference, come say hi. and Yeah, <laughs> come say hi and we'll hang out. Thank you very much. So until then, thank you very much for, for joining. Uh, thank you very much for the time today. Much, much appreciated. And I, I can't wait to uh, to do a, maybe a follow-up session again and then hopefully ha host you in person in New York City sometime soon. Thank you again for, for taking the time. Thanks all for joining. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Take care.